there, there are times of transition in our lives that are both a beginning and, a, and an end. I think of, um, you know, we're not too far. Uh, students, if you're students in the room, you're, you know, a third of the way through the second semester. Congratulations. You're, we're almost to a time where some will graduate. And we call them, I think mostly we say, hey, when's graduation, right? We think of it as a, as a, as a graduation ceremony. But it didn't always used to be called that, right? It, it used to be called a a commencement ceremony. It, was, it wasn't just the celebrating the end of something, it was celebrating like the beginning of the rest of your life, of you've been trained for something, great job, here's your diploma, now get started. It was a, it was a, a ceremony that was about a launching, and, and this time that we read in the Gospel of Luke today is a little bit like that. Peter is, in some real ways, at the end of a season. And the way Luke writes his gospel, this is very much like the end of a section, the end of a season where Jesus has been proving who he is. And for the first time, a human, not a demon, who they get it the whole time. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. But for the first time, a human is going to say, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ of God. And it's going to be a, a moment of of affirmation of what Peter knows, and yet it's going to be the start of a brand new season in Peter's life that he has to start over and start growing again. Peter is finally ready to begin to hear what God's plan is in Jesus. And if you think, you know, we talk a lot about it, about how, you know, if you're living these stories, we know these stories, we know where it's headed, and we, I don't know why the disciples don't just follow Jesus and understand everything. Jesus already told you what's going to happen, just believe him, and yet, as they are living this out, it's very difficult for them to understand what God's plan is in Christ. So we're going to see the end of the season where Peter and the rest of the disciples come to an understanding of who Jesus really is. And I, I, I want you to think about how important that is in your life. I say that probably every other week in here, right? That the most important thing about you is just who you think Jesus is, and this is crucially important. And yet, that's not the end of it. That is a, a, a checkmark point. That is a very important thing for us to understand. But then we have to begin to say, okay, Jesus, if that's who you are, then what do you want to do? What is your plan? What is God's plan for the world in and through you. So Paul had just read the words. Now it happened as, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Jesus' method of discipleship is go camping with 12 guys for three years. Even as he is praying alone, the disciples are with him. They get to watch him as he is in relationship with the Father. That has to play into what Peter knows that the crowds don't know. They have seen the intimate relationship Jesus has with the Father. So he is praying alone and the disciples were with him. And he asked them, what do the, uh, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and one, or one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Well, first we get to what the crowds think. You know, it's worth noting that as Luke writes this, Peter's report about what the crowds think is the same as Herod's understanding uh, about 15 verses earlier. Herod had said, oh, is this John the Baptist? I thought I already killed that guy. Or maybe it's another one of the prophets, or maybe this is Elijah. And the same formula now comes out of the uh, mouth of Peter. So 
it's pretty, if the, if the fishermen know it and the, the palace knows it, this has to be, like these were the theories about what was going on out there in the fields in Galilee. Who uh, is Jesus? Well, maybe he's John, that makes sense. He's calling people to repentance. Um, maybe he's one of the prophets. Again, he does a lot of prophet-like stuff. But then I, I just want to highlight really quickly that one of the theories of the crowd is that maybe Jesus is Elijah. And Elijah uh, was, was huge in the understanding of the first century Jewish people because certainly he was a prophet and there was, Luke has a lot to say about the parallel between Jesus' ministry and Elijah's ministry. We talked about that a little bit last week. But not, was, not only was Elijah a, uh, a miracle worker, not only did he give bread, not only are those, all those other parallels, but Elijah was taken to heaven all still alive. And the, the understanding, somewhere between uh, commentary on the, on the Old Testament scripture from rabbis and lore, like somewhere in between there, I don't know exactly what category you'd put it, but was the understanding that Elijah was in heaven looking after the Jewish nation and that he would come back down, since he had not died, he would come back down and announce the eschatological, go ahead, turn to somebody and say eschatological, it's just something pastors say to sound smart. It means, it just means the 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 end times and the kingdom uh, and the eternal kingdom of God, right? Eschat, the, the having to do with with the end of times is the eschaton. So, so he would come down and announce the eschatological kingdom of God, which means he would say, "Okay, now any nation except Israel, you're gone, and God is going to set up the renewed uh, nation of Israel for once and for all." So this was the expectation. So the people see Jesus doing stuff and they go, maybe this is Elijah. Maybe this is what's happening. And I want you to think about how true that is, that Jesus does come announcing the kingdom. Jesus does come to inaugurate the kingdom of God and also how wrong it was that it wasn't a kingdom that necessitates Rome leaving. Rather, it can happen right in the middle of a government even like Rome's. So that's what the crowd thinks. What does Peter think? You know, I, I hope you notice how lovingly Jesus like leads Peter along. Hey, Peter. Hey, hey Pete. Well, what, what's the news, man? What have you heard? Who do people say that I am? Does it matter? Come on Wednesday. We're going to try to answer this question. Does it matter what the crowd thinks? We have a crowd out there that has some different ideas about Jesus. Does it matter what the crowd thinks? I don't know if it matters um, a whole lot in Peter's life, but there's certainly no sense in ignoring what the crowd thinks. Hey, Peter, what's the crowd think? And Peter's heard the stories. He's heard the theories. And Jesus knows that Peter has heard the theories. And we might even see Jesus letting Peter off the hook here a little bit. It's not like, here's the final, Peter, who am I? But rather, it's like, hey, Peter, what are the theories going on out there? You wonder if Peter's trying to work it out. Peter is still trying to figure out the question that he's asked. Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? You know, I might pause and just go, maybe you've had a time when you were trying to figure out who Jesus is too. Maybe you've heard theories in the world, theories from different religious groups about who Jesus is, theories from people who believe that Jesus was a historical figure but nothing special, people that here would say Jesus is something very special but was not actually a historical figure, and everything in the middle. Maybe you've had a time of searching 
of seeking. I just want you to know that as I stand here right now, I have zero doubt in my mind who Jesus is. I have absolutely 100% confidence in the fact that Jesus is God, that he's the son of God, that he's the second person in the Trinity, that the tomb is empty, um, that he is coming again to take me home. I have no doubt. But if you're in a season of seeking, I don't care what, you know, if your hair still has that rich original color or if there's a little gray in it. I don't care if you popped out of bed this morning for a run or crawled out of bed just in time for church. If you're in a season of saying, you know what? I'm not sure who Jesus is. There might be many of us in the room who say, I'm 100% confident in who Jesus is, but don't let us fool you. We also had times of seeking, times of doubt, times of wandering around following Jesus, going, who is this that the winds and the seas obey him? So Peter has had this long season of, of relationship with Jesus where he's been trying to figure out who Jesus is. And, and if you're in a season like that, then keep pressing in. And I will commend this to you that it was in relationship with Jesus, in seeking after Jesus, in following Jesus, that Peter became convinced who Jesus was. Peter, I've heard from the crowds, who do you say I am? And Peter's heard the theories, but Peter has also been in the boat. Are you with me? Peter has heard what the crowds say, and it's one thing to have an idea about who Jesus is because you read a book or, it's, or you have a great uncle who uh, you know, was a Christian and also a jerk or whatever it might be. But what Peter has is experience with Jesus. And if you want to know who Jesus is, man, I would commend this to you. If you want to know who he is, you have to know him personally. You have to actually walk with him, follow him, not only love him, but let him love you. Peter has been in the boat. He has held the baskets of miracle bread. He was in the room when he saw the little girl go from death to life. And so Peter says something that isn't this incredible, that, has, that no human has been recorded saying before. You know how the, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're kind of rough on Peter. Peter's like this, oh, dopey guy who's kind of hot-headed and whatever. But man, he's the first person ever recorded saying the answer to who Jesus is being, you are the, God, the Christ of God. Man, Christ is the Greek word, the Greek parallel to the Hebrew word Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. That's what that means. And in the Old Testament, there were three groups that were anointed. It was, it was priests and prophets and kings. And certainly Jesus functions as all, uh, as all of those. But in the first century, as Peter's standing there, this phrase, the anointed one of God or the Christ of God, had come to mean something very specific. It meant that as we're waiting for the Christ of God, we are waiting for that heir of David who would rule over an eternal kingdom. This was an eschatological term. 
This was a term that had to do with the king who would be from God, who would set up the eternal, unending rule of God on earth. So Peter's saying something a little bit nuanced, but pretty profound. Peter, here's what the crowd has said. That maybe Jesus, the crowd thinks maybe you're here to announce the kingdom of God, which he did. But Peter says, I don't, I've come to believe that you're not just here to announce the kingdom of God. You're actually here as the king of the kingdom of God. And that is a profound difference. It might be the difference. It might be a parallel in our, in, in our uh, day of, of Jesus as religious leader and moral teacher or the absolute Lord of your life. And there might be some who say, I am totally fine with Jesus being a great teacher and a wonderful religious leader, but I get to captain my own ship. I get to be the one who makes decisions for me. Peter says, no, I don't think you're just here to announce the kingdom. I think you're here as the king of the kingdom. And so Peter, speaking for the 12, is ready to graduate. He's come to the understanding. His education, this phase of his education is somehow complete. It's time for a new life of ministry, a new season of ministry to, to launch for Peter and He's become convinced of who Jesus is. So immediately Jesus makes something that should be obvious, very clear to Peter. And I want to I focus on it because it should be obvious to Peter, uh, but it's not. And also it should be obvious to people in our day, but it's just not. And, and here is the big idea that is so easy to miss, that since Jesus is the eternal, eschatological, divine, king of the kingdom of God, he is the one who gets to define who he is. See, it was the most natural thing for Peter to go, I think you are the king of the kingdom of God. So here's what we're going to do, Jesus. I'll tell you what our side thinks, and we're going to go march on Rome in the morning. You get to be at the head. You're the power. Follow me. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those to whom, those that bow and say, um, God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. And it is the easiest thing, and maybe so close to true that it's the most insidious heresy there is, to actually know who Jesus is and then expect him to be on your side. Instead of saying, if you are the king, I'm on your side. So, start in verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Notice there's a them, so he's talking not just to Peter, but to the disciples. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. I don't have time to get into this, but now he refers to himself not only as the, the, the Christ of God, the anointed one who's going to lead the kingdom of God, be the king, but also he refers to himself as the son of man, the reference to Daniel. You're with me, right? Um, the, as Daniel is, ex, uh, the, the expectation from Daniel was that God, the ancient of days, would send the son of man uh, to, to lead, to redeem Israel from the nation. So Jesus is, is that as well. 
So the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So first he, he charges Peter not to tell anybody. And I think most of what you read on the messianic secret in Mark and Luke, the, that Jesus spends a lot of time at the beginning of the gospel saying, don't, don't tell anybody, has something to do with, look, if you tell everybody who I am, I'm going to get murdered before I want to be. And that's not a bad, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I think there's part of that. But do you think maybe another part of it is Peter? You know some stuff. You have correctly identified who I am, but you don't know the plan. Peter, I have to tell you what I want you to do. You can't understand who Jesus is and then go, I have found Jesus and I'm going to go tell everybody what Jesus thinks. No, there's a still a long season of discipleship ahead for Peter. And maybe we would do well to think that same thing. Knowing rightly who Jesus is does not rightly mean we know what he thinks about everything. But that we would just continue to bow to him, bow to him, bow to him, bow to him. And that would be the end. So, first he says, don't tell anybody. Again, it's taken Peter time to understand who Jesus is. Maybe months. It's been my relationship and partnership that Peter has understood. Peter, you're graduating, but you're not done. For, for those of you that are in college, you know exactly what this is like. Because you graduated from high school and went, yeah, and you threw the thing. And you're like, woo! And then the next semester, there you are. So frustrating, isn't it? Just going, oh, I had more to learn. Shoot. This is the stage Peter's in. So how does Jesus define his role as the king? Well, right here he defines it using four phrases. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. We love to talk about victory. I love to talk about victory. And in fact, any version of the good news that does not include the victory of the empty tomb is not good news. There is victory in Jesus. In the blood of the Lamb, there is power that is all right and true. And yet, victory is the end in Jesus' life of suffering and rejection and death and then resurrection. We love to talk about victory. We are less excited to talk about suffering, even victory born of suffering. So suffering, re rejection, death, and resurrection. First suffering, he says... Yes, Peter, I am the Davidic king. I am the one. I am the, the one, the ancient of days has sent. I, I sent. I'm the son of man. I'm the Christ of God. I'm the eternal king. Yes, I am here to invite the world, including the Gentiles, into the kingdom of God. But it isn't going to happen like you think. And not only suffering, but rejection by the elders and chief priests and scribes. The, the ruling council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, was made up of three kinds of people. Anybody want to guess? Elders, chief priests, and scribes. So Jesus is saying, the ones that you have revered as the religious leaders your whole life, the council in Jerusalem, the scribes, the ones who are the experts in the law, I am not going to be received by them, rather I'm going to be rejected by them. Jesus is going to be 
completely, reje completely rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Now, that does not mean that there aren't some from that class that, that follow him. Certainly, Nicodemus stands out as, as someone who was in that class and yet ended up as a follower of Jesus. And yet, as, a, as an institution, individuals might follow Jesus, but as an institution, he was rejected. Suffering, rejection, and then death. Jesus is not going to die in a glorious military battle with Rome. Rather, he will be convicted and tried by the Jews, God's chosen people, and he will be executed by their enemies, the Romans. Maybe the only thing the Jews and the Romans ever really agreed on is the murder of the Son of God. So Roman execution ordained by Jewish edict and mocked as the king of the Jews in the process. Man, I hope you see Jesus going, man, Peter, I don't know how you think this is going to go. Peter, you've rightly said that I'm the king of the kingdom of God, and that's true. And I don't know what you're expecting, but the, the religious authorities of our day, they're not in. They're going to reject me. And also the civil leaders of our day, I'll end up on one of their crosses. How could this be the Christ of God? If you're Peter, don't you be thinking, I have many ideas of how this could go, but suffering and rejection and death are not there. Jesus finishes and says, I'll be rejected and be killed, but on the third day be raised. The end of suffering and rejection and death is resurrection. resurrection. Oh, Peter, I'm not here to conquer Rome. I'm here to conquer death. Man, if you had an amen in you, I don't know. Like, I'm not here to just make Rome into the kingdom of God. I'm here to actually solve the problem of sin and death. Christians, can you tell me why we think we're just one cultural movement away from solving it when it's already solved? Jesus is not here to overthrow Claudius. No, he's here to overthrow the kingdom of sin and death. What the rest of the gospel of Luke will bear out is that the disciples remain confused about this. They don't know. Do they know who Jesus is? Yes. Do they understand the mission of suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection? No. And we struggle with this today. I struggle with it. Let me be the first to say, do I know who Jesus is? Totally. Teach two classes at a Christian school about, I know who Jesus is. Am I okay with suffering? No, <laughs> I don't want to. Do I want to follow Jesus? Oh yeah, with my whole heart, my whole life and everything I've got. So when I'm confronted with a culture that doesn't think like me, like a Christian, even persecutes me, will I respond with grace and forgiveness like Jesus responded? I'm trying. Jesus not only tells Peter, you're right with who I am, but he needs to define for Peter what the mission of the kingdom is. And... Christians, all super nice, and everybody's so good looking here. Yeah. Amen. 
suffering. <laughs> there's, there's no mirror, so I can say that. The God who conquered death did it through suffering. And not only that, but the church for most of time has been a church persecuted. I don't think we should go looking for persecution. In fact, I think that's another mistake we make is I can totally walk out on the street corner and get persecuted if I'm obnoxious enough. Uh, it's not that we go looking for it, but that just that we understand that it is not by overthrowing Rome, but rather it is the mission of grace and forgiveness that leads to suffering that leads to victory. That this is the path that Jesus laid out for himself, and this is the path that he has called us to live alongside him. Jesus needs Peter and the rest of the disciples to not only know who he is, but also that his life, what his life is going to be like, because he doesn't just want us to believe in him. He wants to be joined in this work, this victorious work of going through rejection and suffering and even death to resurrection. We can't say no to suffering, no to rejection, no to death, and then yes, please to resurrection. Now, it's true that Jesus paid the price that we couldn't pay and that we, don't, we will never suffer like him. And yet he looked at us and said, in this world, there's going to be trouble. He looked at, at Pilate and said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would be wrecking shop right now. But he continues, and this is important. Verse 23, and then he said, if anyone would come after me, do you want to come after Jesus? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to like, have him be not just your rabbi, but your Lord, the, the king of the kingdom that you are in? Want to reject your old life, the flesh, the sin and death, the kingdom of darkness, and instead live in the kingdom of light with him as your king? Well, if you want that, then let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, uh, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in, uh, in his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the Son, uh, Son of Man, be ashamed. Oh, I totally messed that up. Sorry. Uh, the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's what it meant as Peter's sitting there. It's what it meant as in the early church, as Paul is writing to persecuted churches, as Peter is discipling a bunch of persecuted Christians. It's what it has always meant that what it means to follow Jesus is self-denial. There's no other way. Every Christian who follows Jesus will find themselves very early in their walk with the Lord saying, may I decrease, may he increase. One commentator put the, the instruction to self-denial this way. He said, for the believer, we do not have a both and choice, but we have an either or choice. Isn't that beautiful? You can't have the kingdom of God in the, in the kingdom of Grant. You can't have the glory of you and the glory of God both in equal measure. No, we have an either or. You want to go conquer the world? Conquer it. Nobody's stopping you. Do you want victory in Jesus? Then deny yourself. 
Come as you are. With all of your junk, come to the foot of the cross. Come to Jesus and he will love you in your prideful, sinful self. But none of your baggage is welcome once you get here. Got to give up on pride. Got to give up on sin. This isn't supposed to make you powerful or popular. Can you imagine the early church, us going, yeah, but aren't you supposed to like, get more likes with this stuff? Be like, oh, I'll let you know right after they light me on fire. This isn't supposed to be good for business or follows or tweets. Instead, you will find yourself saying, and it's upside down, I can't explain this, but you will find yourself riddled with joy saying, I got to decrease and he's got to increase. I'm so tired of living for my glory. It never works. It's just frustrating. I'm so tired of the kingdom of Grant. I messed it up over and over and over. I'm so tired of trying to be the biggest dog in the heap. How about instead of that, I just let go and just let God be my king. I just want more of him. I want him to be famous. I don't care about me at all. Like the peace, the joy comes when I let go. And I just go, is there, is there self-denial? That's nothing. Let's do it. I wasn't much to hang on to anyway. More than that, Jesus emptied himself to, be, to become human. Do you remember Philippians telling us he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a human? He emptied himself to be human and requires us to be empty of pride as we come and follow him, that we might be born again to new life in him. It's all over the scriptures. Put to death what is earthly. Take off the flesh. Peter knows who Jesus is, but now there's this whole other decision to be made. Peter knows that Jesus is the king, and now it's like, hey, well, Pete, will you follow me into a life of self-denial? Jesus is not a hammer to prove I'm right. Jesus is an ever-present help when I'm struggling. He is the hope and my peace in spite of struggle. And oh, the victory on the other side of resurrection is so beautiful and wonderful and intimate and glorious that every taste I get of the, the joy that comes from self-denial makes me want to pursue Jesus more. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Luke's the only one that says daily. I'm glad he said it. The cross is such a ready metaphor for Christians that I'm not sure it's really possible for us to feel what Jesus meant. You know, I wonder if, if uh, you know, there's probably some Bible translator out there who's arguing that it should say, like, take up your firing squad daily. Take up your lethal injection every day. Like this life is supposed to be so fundamentally at odds with Rome, you know, that believers in Jesus would be at risk of ultimate punishment at the hands of Rome every day. And I need to be careful. We don't live in Rome. I think it's foolhardy to, to equate 
Rome, to anything that we live in today. I don't think that's, that's the situation. And yet we could say this. I think this is safe to say. A life of grace and forgiveness and self-denial and following Jesus every day is going to put you at odds with the culture. Forgiveness and grace is just, I don't know if you've been on the internet, but forgiveness and grace, not super popular. Feels like losing. To say, I just forgive you. I just love you. Okay. It feels like losing. No, you got to prove yourself right, don't you? Or you got to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Not only was Peter looking at a life of rejection by Israel, but a life that would put him at odds with Rome. He would, go to, he would go to a cross as well. So how's Peter supposed to exist in that culture? So you just get beat up? You just like go, well, Jesus said we're just going to lose all the time. No, it's not that at all. Rather, it echoes what Paul will say later, that we fight not with the the same weapons of this world, but rather with things like prayer and love and forgiveness and grace. And the world needs us so desperately. The world needs Christians who are willing to deny themselves so desperately. The, the world so desperately needs people who are living lives of love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness, who also you look at them and go, why are they the ones that are joyful and peaceful? It seems like as they deny themselves and follow Jesus, they're filled with love and joy and peace and kindness. And, man, the world needs that. Man, if there's any hint of pride that you're hanging on to, just let it go. What are we doing? Jesus died for it. Put it on the cross. Die to yourself and move on. Because remember, the end of life with Jesus is victory. It's resurrection. It's joy and peace now. It's not just joy and peace someday. It's joy and peace in the middle of the mess. Life with Jesus sometimes feels strange. It feels unnatural. That's because it's supernatural. And then our passage ends just very briefly with a warning and a promise. The warning is this. Look, if you're ashamed of Jesus, then the kingdom of God isn't for you. You know, Jesus said, if, if you're ashamed of, my, of me and my words now, well then uh, on that day of judgment when I come with the holy angels, I'll be ashamed of you too. I looked in Greek. I really did. I tried to figure out what ashamed could mean except ashamed, but it just means ashamed. How could we be ashamed of Jesus? It might be that we just insist on in saying that we know who he is and then living for ourselves. Saying Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and then living like Grant is the one who should make the decisions. The kingdom of God is not for you. If you want to be your own boss, there's only two kinds of people. God, your will be done. Or God looking at you and go, your will be done. Do it your way. We might think about, I'm sure we all know people or, or you know, companies or something that proclaim Jesus, but it's, it's anger, it's power, it's never forgiveness, grace, meekness. 
You know, the first, well, or, you know, the Ten Commandments include shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And when you're eight, you're told you're not allowed to say, oh my God. And that's true. Don't say that. It's unbefitting of an eight-year-old. But really what it means to take the Lord's name in vain is to say, like, you got married and you took your spouse's name and then you went and lived like you weren't married. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. We took his name, but then we live not in glory and honor and, and for his glory, but rather like we don't have a relationship with him at all. I think Jesus is saying something similar here. If you're going to follow me, you have to actually follow me. You can't take my name and then live for yourself. So then, there's not only this warning, but there's also this promise. Some of you who are here now will see the kingdom of God. And man, a lot of ink has been spilled over that. Does that mean, is that a reference to the resurrection of Jesus? There are some that would say that means Jesus actually came back in 70 AD. I don't think that, that, seems, that, that doesn't seem like the best answer to me. Um, or, or maybe Jesus was a man of his times and didn't really understand. Or maybe it means we'll see the kingdom of God after, he die, after we die. But can I read something that the same guy that Jesus is talking to, Peter, can I read something that he wrote later after um, the resurrection uh, from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9? I'm either going to put my glasses on or make half of it up. These are Peter's words, writing to his, like, you know, to the, to the persecuted church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter's found the kingdom. Peter knows what it means to live in the kingdom of God. He's sitting there, like, totally persecuted, going, blessed be God who gives us this living hope. Somebody should write a song. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. He's like, I've found an inheritance that won't burn. It won't go bad. Undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed for the last time. Peter's like, I am so fired up about what's coming. I have found the kingdom. Eureka. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Isn't it weird that Peter and, Peter and Paul both, who lived lives that we would, I am too soft to live, not even close, right? I would just be, I would just be weeping all the time. I would need a blanket, a puppy, I don't know. I would need comfort. And these strong, strong men who suffer greatly kind of go, ah, these light and momentary afflictions. Maybe right now you're going to have to suffer a little bit. But man, let me tell you that I found the kingdom of God. This is your hope. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice uh, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In salvation, in the salvation of your souls, in the hope of heaven, have you 
found anything worth denying yourself for? Peter, look, if you'll be faithful, some of you who are right now, you're going to know what I'm talking about with the kingdom of God. Like before you die, in your lifetime, you're going to understand. And later, Peter writes and goes, guys, what could we not put up with? I think if you were going to ask Peter what it meant by seeing the kingdom of God, he would say something like that. Do you know who Jesus is? Fantastic. Are you willing to live for him? Amen. Let me pray. And I wonder if I could just encourage you to a time of confession, of commitment. If there are places, I think there's two kinds of people in the room. There's people who still have some pride to let go of, some pride to deny for the sake of following Jesus, and then people who are lying. I think those are the two categories of people in the room. You're going to have a big day full of friends. You've got a busy week ahead. You've just got a couple of minutes here. Could I just pray for you, and could you just search your heart? Say, God, what would it be that I would deny myself? so I could follow.